What a joy it is to open God's Word this morning to 1 Samuel 30. I invite you to open your Bibles at this time to that passage. It's on page 235 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. And as we open God's Word, I want to remind you that whenever we read the Bible, we must remember that it is far more than some kind of holy how-to manual for navigating our lives. The primary purpose of Scripture, which was iterated in the song we just sung, is to reveal the plan of God to save humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the main message of Scripture from front to back, cover to cover. And that's why John Calvin said, the Scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. That's why the 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. And this is true even when it comes to the Old Testament. Jesus said, these are the very scriptures that speak of me. One way that the Old Testament does this point us to Christ is by presenting various characters that prefigure Christ. Despite their glaring flaws, they give us a glimpse of what the coming Savior will be like. David is such a character. When we look at David in various aspects, we catch glimpses of his greater descendant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God the ultimate Savior King. But though Christ is the grand theme of all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't present Himself as the exclusive application of every text. After all, Jesus warned people, remember Lot's wife. Uh, When Jesus' disciples were accused by the Pharisees of of breaking the Sabbath because they were breaking off heads of grain and eating them, Jesus pointed back to the example of David and his men and reminded the Pharisees that the Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Old Testament narratives demonstrate that God teaches some of his most vital truths through biography. And that's why we love the characters of Scripture. With all their failures, with all their heroic acts, by the grace of God, we glean both negative and positive lessons from their lives. And we see this with David. The Old Testament characters were real men and women and children who lived in the same world that we inhabit. So in addition to revealing something significant about the character and the person and work of Jesus Christ, they also teach us vital lessons about Christian morality. In other words, they don't just point us to the gospel, but they also show us in some ways how are we to live as ones who believe the gospel. We might call these the moral imperatives of the gospel. What it means to live before God in holiness and to be blameless in our love for God and others. 
as Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. I share all this by way of introduction before we even look at this text today, because the narrative of 1 Samuel 30 illustrates both the saving work of Christ and the kind of men that the gospel is intended to produce. That is not to say that today's text, 1 Samuel 30, does not apply to women and children. It does. But it applies most forcefully to men. Particularly men to whom God has entrusted wives and children. Today, many families are dysfunctional, in disarray, in suffering, because the men haven't stood up to be men. Not the men that God has called them to be. They have abnegated their roles as husbands and fathers. And so my prayer today as we look at this text and understand the broad gospel implications that we would also look at the gospel moral imperatives specifically for us men. My prayer has been and continues to be, men, that this text would break your heart with conviction and yet would also strongly build your confidence in the Lord so that you can be the man that God has called you to be. So that you can be the man that your wives and children need you to be. And this world needs you to be. The title of today's message is The Road to Recovery. 1 Samuel 30. The transformative truth, that is the principle that will produce positive change in our lives if we really believe it and embrace it as presented in God's word is this the Lord rescues his people and recovers what's been lost Isn't that good news amen the Lord rescues his people and recovers what's been lost let's look at how this principle played out in the life of David how it points to Jesus the greater descendant of David, and how it applies to us today. Speaking of the context, let's keep in mind the preceding context of 1 Samuel 30 as we come to this chapter. You might recall that David and his men have been living in Philistia for the last 16 months with their families. And during this time, there's no record of David writing psalms or praying or seeking the Lord. He seems to be in a spiritual slump of sorts. You ever felt that way? David understands. David had been there. And yet during this time, David has also gained the trust of Achish, the king of the Philistines, the commander-in-chief of their troops who's getting ready to go to war with Israel. And this puts David in quite a quandary. But God uses the contempt that the other Philistine commanders have for David and the conflict this produces between them and Achish to get David out of this jam. 
Achish sends David home. Back to Ziklag. The town in Philistia that the king had assigned to David and his men and their families to live. It was for the last year and four months their home away from home. We can only imagine the relief and the joy that David and his men would have felt at this time. Here they are going to a war against their own people, Israel, with the armies of Philistia and this terrible quandary. And God works out everything to get David out of this bind and go back home. Back to the comforts of his own house. The loving embrace of his wife. The, the eager joy and the, the ecstasy on the face of his children as they welcome home dad. And yet their joyful anticipation is shattered by the sledgehammer of reality. Look with me at 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 6, as we continue the narrative. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. We can only again imagine the grief that David and his men felt as they encountered this reversal of fortune their homes a heap of ashes, their wives and children gone, carried away by the enemy during their absence. This was the loss they suffered. Who was the enemy that took them away? Verse 1 tells us. Who was it? The Amalekites. That bring back a haunting memory? This is the enemy that Saul failed to exterminate when God told him to. And that God gave him the opportunity to do. Saul's act of disobedience decades earlier brought devastating loss and unspeakable grief to literally hundreds of households later. But even then, the effects of Saul's sin could have been mitigated if David and his men had been home with their wives and children instead of with the Philistines. A predicament you might remember that arose because David doubted God's word. Remember what he said? I'll never be king. Surely enough, Saul's going to kill me. And that's what caused him to go to Philistia in the first place. He doubted God's word and ended up going where he never should have gone. And then his absence and that of his fellow soldiers left their wives and their children exposed 
to the attacks of the enemy. And it costs them greatly. And not only that, but we read here at the end of this first paragraph that David's own men now turned against him. And we're even talking of stoning him because it was his leadership that got all of them into this mess. Yes, they followed him, but it was David's influence that brought this about. As we look at this first paragraph, I hope that you can see with me some what we might call broad gospel implications. A foreshadowing, a a theological picture of spiritual realities. Because the plight of David and his men and of their wives and children illustrate the devastating consequences of sin, doesn't it? Just as they suffered the consequences of Saul's sin from decades earlier, so all people everywhere suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, the very first human. Paul talks about this in Romans 5.12 where he says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. That is to say that we have compounded Adam's sin by our sin. Just as David made matters worse by doubting God's word and fleeing to Philistia. Because David was where he shouldn't have been, his family wound up where they shouldn't have been. His absence left them exposed to the enemy's attacks. Because David wasn't there to protect his family, he lost them. And his home became a heap of ashes. Now we can see, can't we, the specific moral application? This crisis depicts not only the condition of humanity as a whole, that we've all been taken captive by our sin and suffer the effects of the first human sin, our parents in the garden. Our condition being compounded by our own sins that we bring to the picture. Yeah, this crisis depicts not only the condition of humanity as a whole, but it also exposes the failure of men in particular to protect their families. To be where they ought to be so that their wives and children are not left exposed to the enemy's attacks. And that's where we again can go back to Adam our first parent, the first man, and his failure in the garden to take care of Eve, to protect her, to guard her, to lead her. In his book, The Men We Need, Brant Hansen highlights Adam's failure. When the garden was faced with a threat, Adam did nothing. When Eve was under spiritual attack, Adam did nothing. When Eve offered him fruit, Adam took the path of least resistance. When God came into the garden to speak to him, Adam hid. When God confronted him with what he did, Adam made up excuses and blamed Eve. 
At no point in this story is Adam doing his job. He's passive. And so are many today. Not like David, they're not necessarily geographically gone. But there are many men today who are physically present in the home, but you're spiritually absent. You're passive. And a passive man, quite frankly, is useless to those around him. Doctors Paul and Virginia Friesen, you might have heard of them. They have their doctorates in marriage and family therapy and have been involved in family ministry for more than 40 years, have said this, and I quote, Passive men are a far more common problem in our practice than men who are overbearing, physically intimidating, or the other usual things that we consider examples of toxic masculinity. End quote. That's not to say that men's physical intimidation or abusive words or angry outbursts aren't a problem in the home. They are. But they're saying, based on 40 plus years of experience in family counseling, the greater problem, the more frequent problem, are men's passivity in the home. Do nothing husbands and dads when it comes to taking responsibility for the spiritual welfare of their families. And I've seen this myself in over 30 years of pastoral ministry. Yeah, there have been other family issues to deal with, but the passivity among husbands and fathers is rampant and contributes much to the dysfunction of homes. Families are suffering from their lack of leadership and their lack of loving daily involvement in the lives of their wives and children. Brant Hansen, to quote him again, rightly states, quote, Nobody admires a passive man. People don't buy movie tickets to watch men without a mission. Passive man is a disappointment at best and a threat at worst. The good news is you can make the decision right now to be different. End quote. And that's because God's mercies are new every morning. But when I said at the outset of the message that my prayer was that it would first break your heart with conviction is there's one thing about David and the men who were with them. They loved their families and grieved what they lost. When they got back home, they lifted up their voices and they wept, listen, until they had no more strength to weep. When's the last time you cried like that over a loss in your life? That's the kind of conviction, the kind of heartbreak that is necessary for men to become the men that God has called them to be. It doesn't mean that you have to have physically tears pouring down your face, uh, racking with sobs, not necessarily, maybe, but there needs to be that kind of heartbreak and heart condition, uh, heart conviction inside if true change is going to happen. But you can make the decision today to be different. 
That's what David does. That's where David's example is so wonderful. This is where we can glean so much from his example throughout really the remainder of this chapter. After suffering the loss of his family, what does David do? He seeks the Lord. And that's point two, the Lord sought. Look at the last half of verse six on to verse through verse eight. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Here's where we see a very significant difference between David and Saul, don't we? Just a couple chapters earlier in chapter 28, we saw that Saul too, same words, was in great distress. And what did Saul do? He consulted a medium. Here, David is greatly distressed, and what does he do? He inquires of the Lord and strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Don't miss that expression, the Lord his God. Because the narrator, by using this terminology, is emphasizing the intimate relationship that David had truly enjoyed with the Lord. It just wasn't the Lord God, it was the Lord his God. He had sung praises to the Lord. He had written poems and psalms to the Lord. He had spent countless evenings and mornings in fellowship with the Lord. And we read in chapters gone by that the Lord was with David. Alexander McLaren points out, David could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, but he could say, my God. And that is where the strengthening begins. When David asked the Lord if he should pursue the band of raiders that had taken his family, the Lord's response is immediate clear and encouraging. God says, in essence, go after them, for you will surely catch up with them and recover everything you've lost. Isn't God gracious, merciful, ever watching over his own? Nahum 1.7 says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble And he knows those who trust in him. Those who take refuge in him. How do we take refuge in the Lord? We take refuge in the Lord by confessing our sins. By calling out to God in prayer. Expressing our desperation for his divine help. By clinging to God's promises once again. No longer doubting God's word, but believing God's word and then doing God's word. Committing ourselves to obey what God has spoken. And brothers and sisters, we cannot do this in a quid pro quo kind of way. A tit for tat, so to speak, like God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. 
Because in some cases, God doesn't allow you necessarily in this life to recover all. You may not get your wife back. You may not get your kids back. You may not get your former life back. You may not get all your possessions back. Sin has scars. But God is gracious. It's not a quid pro quo arrangement like, I'll seek the Lord if he'll do such and such for me. David sought the Lord and strengthened himself in the Lord his God before there was any guarantee from God whatsoever that he would get anything back. And this is to say, I think the lesson for us is that we must seek the Lord for the Lord's sake, simply because he is worthy. Not because he gives us what he wants, what we want. That is to say, God is not a means to an end. God is the end. As John Piper has said, the great business of life is to worship God and enjoy him forever. In his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis declared, listen to this, he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. Let me say that again. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. Because to have God is to have everything. When Asaph, in Psalm 73, repented of his sinful outlook on things and sought the Lord afresh, he prayed, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My guess is that David prayed something very similar to that when he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When there was no one else around him to strengthen him, they wanted to stone him. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And when you can pray that kind of prayer truly from the heart, then you can be sure, men, that you are on the road to recovery. And that was the case with David. We move from the loss suffered to the Lord sought to now the loved ones saved. Look at verses 9 to 15 in 1 Samuel 30. So David set out in the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed be behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in an open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. 
We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. As we look at verses 9 to 15, we see two significant forces at work. And this is so important, don't miss this. Two significant forces at work in this series of events. David's proactivity and God's providence. David's proactivity and God's providence. We read that David pursued And God provided a man in the middle of nowhere who would direct David to exactly where he needed to go to do what needed to be done. Brothers and sisters, Scripture teaches that God is sovereign and that people are responsible. And although our finite minds cannot fully comprehend, even come close to comprehending, how these two realities are compatible with each other, God's sovereignty and my responsibility, we must embrace both truths to be biblical. God's sovereignty does not negate your responsibility. When it was time to come to church this morning, my guess is that you did not say, if God wants me to go to church, he'll start the car. (laughs) Now you might have prayed, God, I want to go to church. Please make my car start. I I have a truck sitting with a dead battery in our driveway. So you might pray that. But the fact is, God has given you the keys. He's given you a hands and wrists to to insert the key to the ignition and to turn it or or to press the ignition button with your fingers and and drive yourself to church. I'm glad you did. Once again, Brant Hansen writes in his book, The Men We Need, we only tend to get weird and super spiritual when it comes to other people's needs. These are the things we consider God's job. This has a bonus effect of taking us off the hook. We think it doesn't matter whether or not we meet a need because someone else will meet it if God really wants it to be taken care of. Brothers and sisters, that is a lopsided theology that denies a fundamental principle in Scripture, which is this. What you do really matters. What you do really matters. Because God has ordained not only the end, but the means by which that end is arrived at. And again, we don't know how all that figures out, but never ever use God's sovereignty as a cop-out for evading your responsibility. Because the scriptures teach both. What you do really matters. And while this is true of everybody, I want to say, especially to the men here today, God has uniquely placed you where you are, exactly where you are right now in your life to make a real difference in the lives of those around you. 
No one else in the world is in your exact context. God has placed you right where you are so that you can do for Him what nobody else in the world can do. And that ministry, if you have a family, begins with your wife and your children. I think that would make a great saying, actually. Let me write that down. How about, this will be good. Charity begins at home. What do you think? God expects you to provide your wife and children with the loving servant leadership they need from you in the home. Man, if you are not proactive, if you do not pursue in giving your wives and children the protection, the direction, the encouragement, the interaction, the help, and the support they need, most likely they won't get it. They won't get it. God has placed you in that context to be His blessing to them. If you would devote your time and energy to serving them, they will flourish because of your influence. Just as your absence can leave them exposed to the enemy and harm them because passive men aren't neutral, they're an actual threat to the home, godly men, loving men, actively involved men are a huge blessing to the home. God's blessing. Charles Francis Adams, the the son of President John Quincy Adams and the grandson of President John Adams, kept a diary. One day he entered, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary that's still in existence. That same day in his diary, Brooke wrote, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. See, the father thought it was no big deal that he could have been doing more productive things, that it was a waste of time to go fishing with his son. But his son rightly understood that that was the best investment his father could have made that day. And the difference between discerning whether something is a waste or an investment is how you understand God's purpose for your life. That's how you discern what's really a waste and what's really an investment. And often success and failure hinges on how far you're willing to go to give yourself, to give of yourself to your family. And not only for the sake of your family, but for the sake of other families too. Did you notice that in the text we read? That when David and his men arrived at the brook Besor, 200 of the 600 men, one-third of them, were too exhausted to continue the chase. Now keep in mind, don't be too hard on these men, because remember, they came to Ziklag, coming from the camp of the Philistines on the third day. There was between somewhere between 60 and 75 miles from where they were to get back home to Ziklag. 
That's 20 to 25 miles a day on foot with baggage. Three straight days of that kind of rugged travel, and these men were absolutely exhausted. And then on top of the physical exhaustion, there was the emotional exhaustion, right? They lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And then David seeks the Lord, inquires of the Lord while they overtake them. So with virtually no break, they take off after the band of Amalekites who had kidnapped their families. And so by the time they get to the brook Besor in pursuit of the Amalekites, one third of them are completely worn out. They just didn't have the strength to go on. They didn't, they didn't have anything left. And so they stayed with the baggage while David and 400 of the remaining men, two-thirds of the men, crossed the brook and continued the pursuit. And because they continued the pursuit, because they were proactive in that endeavor, God providentially provided a man a slave who had been left behind, sick, in the open country where he was found by David and his men, a man who could point them the way to where they needed to go. Look now at verses 16 to 20. And when he had taken him down, behold, they, that is the Amalekites, were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. David, oh man, you imagine Three days, exhausted, ziklag, home burn, wives and kids gone. Strengthening yourself in the Lord. You're taken off after them, leaving 200 of your men behind. They're too hard to go on. And David and his men keep on pushing through, 400 of them. They find this Egyptian. He leads them where they need to go. And David comes up on a crest of a hill, and there he sees them, the enemy, party, celebrating all the the, the people and the possessions that they had taken. I can't imagine what David was like in that moment. But we know this. He saw the party and he pounced. <laughs> he slaughtered them all night long and all throughout the next day. And we're told that no one escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. I was thinking... David had 400 young men with him, so it shows how outnumbered they were. It says they slaughtered all of them except for this group of 400 men that were able to escape. So there was a ton of Amalekites that were slaughtered at the hand of David. So humanly speaking, especially when you consider how exhausted they would have been, the odds would have been completely stacked against them. But if God is for us, who can be against us? 
What is impossible with men is possible with God. And David had strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And then David did what he had to do. And what David did really mattered. It made a difference of a lifetime to his wives and children. In fact, did you pick up as we read those verses how the narrator clearly emphasizes David's actions and the decisive role that he played in this turn of events in this victory that came about? Listen again, I'll just read the highlights for you. David struck them down. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people said, this is David's spoil. And friends, this takes nothing away from the Lord because it shows what God can do with a man who hits rock bottom and has nothing left but the Lord, but turns to the Lord and finds his strength in him. God's power shows up best in weak people. Isn't that what Paul said? What Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians, and Paul struggled with a thorn in the flesh, asked God three times to remove it. What did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient. My power shows up best in weak people. God's grace was enough for Paul, it was enough for David, and praise God, it's enough for me and for you. By the way, don't we see in David's victory a foreshadowing of Christ's ultimate victory over Satan? Remember what, how we said how this depicted our spiritual condition? Held captive by Satan? Separated from God? Dead in our trespasses and sins? Helpless and hopeless? All seemed lost until Jesus showed up the snake crusher. And he dealt Satan a decisive blow at the cross of Calvary. When Christ died for our sins, Scripture says, Satan was completely disarmed and defeated and we were set free and forgiven. Amen? In fact, what I did is I, I actually removed David's name and I superimposed Jesus' name with very little variation to the text. And here's what I read. Jesus in reference to Satan, his victory over him. Jesus struck him down. Jesus recovered all that Satan had taken. Jesus rescued his people. Jesus brought back all so that his people said, this is Jesus's spoil. And isn't that exactly what the Lord proclaimed through Isaiah the prophet? seven centuries before Jesus' birth when Isaiah proclaimed, or the Lord proclaimed through Isaiah, I will reward him extravagantly and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The imagery that Isaiah shares here is that of a, a conqueror sharing his victory, the spoils of his victory, with his allies. And that's what we see David doing throughout the rest of this narrative in 1 Samuel 30. 
the loot shared, verses 21 to 30. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jatir and Aroer and Sifmoth and Eshtemoah and Rakal and the cities of the Jeremielites and the cities of the Canaanites and Horma and Borishan and Athak and Hebron and for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Could say much about these verses, but let me just provide a few summary thoughts. When David and his men returned from battle, the mean-spirited ones didn't want to share the spoil. But David said, you cannot act this way with what God has given to us. God is the one who preserved us. God is the one who gave us the ability to save our wives and children. God's the one who gave us the victory. The share of the one who stays with the gear is the same as the one who fights. In other words, equal shares for everyone. And we're told that this became a standing rule in Israel under David's reign. This principle was based on David's theological perspective, which is this. It's really a rhetorical question of sorts. If all good things come from the Lord, then who are we to hoard it for ourselves? As if it was our doing. The more we understand God's mercy and grace toward us, the more merciful and gracious and generous we will be toward others. I'd say on a practical level, I think of men who are worse off than we are. Just like the 200 of David's men who were too exhausted to cross the brook, be sore. So there are men today who don't have much, if any, fight left in them. They need us. Their families need us. Our role is not to criticize a brother who is worse off than we are, even if it is owing to his own costly mistakes. Because our attitude ought to be is, there but for the grace of God, go I. Instead of being mean-spirited like some of David's men were, we don't keep the spoil to ourselves. We share the blessings that God has given us with men who have no fight left in them. We do it for the glory of God. We do it for the good of those men. And we do it for the flourishing of their families. And not just their families, 
but their friends, everybody they know. Did you notice that David's sharing of the spoils went beyond just his men and the men's family? He shared it with all the elders in Judah wherever David and his men had gone, saying, here are the spoils of the Lord's victory. And that reminds us that as families flourish, so does society. One heart, one home at a time until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for how your word is always so timely for us men and also for women and children all people everywhere at all times and all situations. And I trust your Holy Spirit, God, to work as the Spirit of Christ, as the wonderful counselor, to meet each person where he or she is at. And I pray that the rock-solid truth of your word would bring conviction to our hearts, encouragement, motivation, and God-honoring change. We look to you, O Lord, in all things, strengthening ourselves in you because we are reminded that the battle is the Lord's. And apart from you, we can do nothing. So strengthen us, O God, according to your word. For we pray these things in the all-victorious name of Christ, our Lord, our King. Amen.